I did trust in myself and I trust my ability to tell people in the white coats that, no, I don't agree with you. We need to do something else and I need you to refer me to the next person in the line that can help me. And I wanted other women to know that that's not just okay, but it's necessary. Having abandoned early plans for a legal career fighting for social justice, Chesley Holman Flotten eventually exercised her passion for advocacy. It just took a couple life-shaking ordeals and a knitting shop to lead her to the role that makes the most of her voice. Find out how navigating the abyss on your own can sometimes make you the best advocate and guide for others. On today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here with Chesley Flotten, and today we are going to talk about how helping others navigate their paths in the world sometimes helps us navigate our own. So welcome to the podcast, Chesley. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think you've listened to a couple of these, so you know my first question is going mm-hmm. to be, when we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you were going to become? Who was I when we when we started? You know, I, I came from a very rural town in Maine, and I was Dartmouth was the only place I wanted to be. But at the same time, it was a bit of a different world for me. Coming from where I grew up, at times it was was overwhelming. I came into it really thinking that I wanted to pursue government and law. I really social justice was hugely important to me, and that's what I really I was so certain that's what I was going to study. I was going to go on to law school. I was going to get into politics. I was going to do all of that. But as happens, you you start taking some classes, and I. I really discovered it wasn't for me, that that government track wasn't for me. And I ended up taking some amazing history classes and I just loved it. And I kind of fell into that. That being, of course, became my major, but I also did a lot of research projects. And so then you asked, like, who was I when I came out? Well, I, I loved history. So I didn't know what else to do because the plan of going to law school was no longer appealing to me. So why not continue with history? So I applied to graduate school. And after Dartmouth, I went to William & Mary with the thought in mind that I was going to get my PhD in history and I was going to research and and teach. That didn't that didn't happen. <laughs> right. No, that, did, that didn't happen. Uh, looking back on it now, I think it was more of a default that I, I found a topic that I loved and that became a comfortable world for me, but not necessarily one that really lit me up. And graduate school was amazing doing that level of academic inquiry and discussion. But after getting my master's, I did one year of the PhD program. And I just realized that there was really something missing. I loved it, but it was now more of the love you might have for a hobby, not something that really inspired any sort of passion or connected me back to that sense of meaning that I had really thought was going to carry me through to whatever profession I found. So I dropped out of that program. I, I just uh, decided that this isn't for me. And I taught for a bit. And at that point, my husband and I were living in Virginia. I married a 94, Peter. And then our first son was on the way. And we decided both our families lived in Maine and we were too far away. 
So we just picked up and moved back to Maine because at that moment in time, that was the most important thing was to be as close to the grandparents as we could. So we did that. We, we left Virginia behind and moved back up to Maine. And that was 20 years ago. That was 20, 21 years ago. 21 years ago. Connor is 21 now. He is a senior in college, and which is amazing that you and I are having this conversation about our 25th. And I have someone graduating to be where we were 25 years ago, which kind of blows my mind. So yeah, we moved back to Maine at that time. And, you know, I was floundering a little bit after Connor was born. Loved being a mom, but that professional side of me didn't really have an outlet. So I ended up seeing an ad for a position at Bates College for the philanthropy department. And I thought this would be perfect because it gave me that sense of of meaning and helping others that I had really been looking for. I was a financial aid kid. I could not have gone to Dartmouth without the generosity of those who had come before. And I felt that really strongly. And by joining the philanthropy department, I thought that, you know, this is a way that I could do the same thing for someone else. I could make it so that other kids who came from economic backgrounds like my own would have a chance to go to an amazing school. And it it was really a fantastic experience. I loved getting to know the alums because particularly those who were really engaged and involved in giving back, they were just so passionate about it and so passionate about their school, which I could totally relate to having gone to a school that, that inspired that. But it was while I was working there that the, you know, the unexpected happened. And I was pregnant with my second son, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So that kind of, um, it kind of changed everything very, very quickly. So I had been working at Bates for about a year and a half when I was diagnosed. And for a little bit of time, I tried really hard to continue life as normal. <laughs> you know, this isn't going to throw me. Uh, I'm not going to be one of those sick people. I am going to keep working. I'm going to keep doing everything as normal. Um, with a toddler and being pregnant. With a toddler, being pregnant, and now having to deal with this cancer thing. Um, So that approach didn't really work very well. It didn't work very well at all. The cancer experience itself was unlike anything, obviously, that I had ever encountered before. Uh, I was only 28 at the time. And one of the things that really uh, struck me and, and really has affected me since was not just how hard it is to be told you have a potentially life-limiting illness that in itself brings its own trauma and and its own impact, but beyond that, just how hard it was to get help. Hmm. Um, I was, I found the lump myself and I went to four different doctors and each one told me that I was too young to have breast cancer. So I, yeah, yeah. So I couldn't possibly have it. Um, And I knew otherwise. And I, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a science major. I wasn't pre-med, but I I knew 
that you couldn't tell by my age whether or not I had cancer. You couldn't tell just by feeling the lump whether or not I had cancer. And I had um, my primary care doctor acted very much like it was anxiety-based, but did send me for an ultrasound. The radiologist who came in, you know, when the radiologist comes in, it's never, never a good thing. So the radiologist came in and he looked at the ultrasound scans and he looked at it and he said, well, if you were 50 or 60 years old, I would be very concerned, but you're too young to have breast cancer. Mm-mm. And I'm sitting there, you know, and, and you're in a very vulnerable place because you're on this table and you've got the Johnny on and, and all of this, and you're waiting to find out if you have cancer. And I'm, I'm thinking that that doesn't make any sense. At this point, like right now, we know so much more about cancers in general and this one in specific than we did 20 years ago. So yeah. it actually took a lot of like fortitude of like, no, I know my body mm-hmm. because you're not getting bombarded with this could be breast cancer. Yeah. Um, that's amazing that you a- knew enough to like stand your ground. Good for you. Well, and, and that's one of the reasons why I do what I do now, because the, again, that was one of the hardest things was to have to advocate for yourself while dealing with this thing that was happening to you and having to be really on top of your game because it was at times it felt it like it was up to you. So I went from that um, radiologist to the OB who was following me, who also said, well, you know, the chances are of it being anything serious or so low, we'll just, you know, go through your pregnancy and you'll be fine. Whereas I knew that, you know, breast cancer often is often fed by estrogen. And so if I went through a pregnancy without dealing with this, then I could be in some real trouble. And so I insisted on seeing a surgeon. So I went to see a surgeon and the surgeon told me that um, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do the biopsy. He said that if he took out every lump that women found, that women would be going around with tons of scars all over their breasts. And I'm just dumbfounded sitting in his office thinking, you can't tell me what I want with my body, that having a scar would be worse than ensuring that I don't have cancer. It from was, your male perspective. From your male perspective, from your male perspective that, oh my God, women will go around with scars on their breasts. And I'm thinking, bring on the scars. Just tell me I don't have cancer. So, so I, I said, no, you're, we are taking this out and we're doing it as, as soon as possible because I'm pregnant. We don't have time to waste. And so we went, did the biopsy and he called me the next day, very apologetic saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. Mm-mm. And, you know, fast forward a little bit. He, um, they, they called me and, you know, I had to go the next day to get all, all of the details. In the meantime, I'm calling everyone I know. Cause I'm like, I, I can't have this surgeon. I have to And luckily, I had a a lot of people in my corner connecting me to, you know, I ended up with a fantastic breast surgeon. Um, She was, she was amazing. So I went, went forward, had, had the surgery, luckily caught it early. Good. Again, um, one of the things that, that struck me is that all the medical professionals seemed so shocked that it was cancer. I guess at that time, it was rarer than it is now. Unfortunately, it's much more common for women under the age of 40 to be diagnosed with with breast cancer. But um, Well, because nobody thought it was possible. They, they, didn't, they didn't think it was it. possible. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if you have breast tissue, whether you're a man or a woman, or you are a teenager or elderly, you can have breast cancer. 
so as I said, as I was going through this, I was also trying to to work, and and I did. I worked right up until um, my I went into labor early. I think it's probably stress caused, and my son Alec was born about six weeks early, um, but he's doing great. Um, so I was very I was very lucky. I did not need uh, chemotherapy, or I couldn't have radiation because of the pregnancy. So it was it was surgically managed. I did have genetic testing, and that's another area where things got very stressful in terms of having to advocate for myself. And I remember um, the insurance companies at that time, genetic testing was, so this is 18 years ago, genetic testing was not as common as it is today. And it certainly wasn't something that they wanted to cover because it was much more expensive. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of support in my doctors for getting it because of my age, but the insurance company still didn't really want to help us out with that. So I just remember one day being at work on the phone with the insurance company basically begging for them to approve this. And, you know, that was one of the few times that I really broke down. And I just remember talking to the, you know, and it's just this help guy at, at the insurance company. I, to this day, I still feel bad for him. So I just burst into tears telling him, you know, like I'm pregnant, I have breast cancer, and I just need you guys to approve this so I know what treatment to do next. And again, it, it goes back to not only did I have to deal with having this disease, I had to figure out how to make my way through every step of the process. And I had to keep on top of everything. You know, you're thrown into this world that you have never been in before. Um, no one my family, to my knowledge, had been in this world before. And I didn't have a roadmap. And I was trying to be as okay as possible while I also tried to figure out what I had to do next to stay alive. And it was extraordinarily hard work. And at the same time, I was a little bit stubborn. And I, I kind of thought, well, I, I can figure this out. I can do this. And it wasn't until a little ways into the process where I started to realize that I, I needed help. And all along, there was this wonderful nurse who kept calling me. And I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't need to talk to anybody about it. I'm just going to keep doing this. And, um, and then I took her call. And it was amazing just to have someone to help point me in the right direction. And um, she ended up connecting me with uh, just this amazing support group and being around other people who got what I was going through was uh, so incredibly powerful. I didn't have to try to explain it to them. I didn't have to try to explain what I was going through because, because they just got it. So that really led me to once I had healed, I did a lot of volunteering with other young women who were diagnosed after me being a peer mentor. There was this wonderful organization that was founded just a few years before I was diagnosed by three women in New York, and it's called the Young Survival Coalition. And it's dedicated to women diagnosed with breast cancer under the ages of 40. And uh, they were a huge lifeline to me. So I started to get more involved in that advocacy work. And I did some work with a local nonprofit that was working to help promote patient-centered care and collaboration between patients and providers. So um, as part of that, I uh, shared my story to try to promote doctors, other provi medical providers to listen to patients, to listen to what 
they're saying and not just dismiss it because statistics might say something else. And and also on the other side, volunteering to share my story so that other young women would feel empowered to trust what they sense within themselves and to know that their voice is extraordinarily important and that they shouldn't be intimidated. And one of the things that I realized is that I think in part because of my education, I did trust in myself and I trust my ability to tell people in the white coats that, no, I don't agree with you. This, We need to do something else and I need you to refer me to the person, the next person in the line that can help me. And I wanted other women to know that that's not just okay, but it's necessary. Yeah. And so... This really does harken back to the younger Chesley of, you know, advocacy being so important. It just the the milieu shifted um, or the, the issue shifted for you. Um, and you really then decided at some point to take it from this volunteerism role in your life to something more professionalized. So tell us how you decide, made that decision and then um, went forward with it. Yeah, so so you're right. It did really tap into that social justice aspect. It's one of the things my experience did is it made me really mad. <laughs> it made me really mad, and I, I wanted things to change. But as life happens, you know, um, these things don't all play out necessarily in a direct line. So I ended up going back to development work this time at Bowdoin College, which is much closer to my home, and kind of picked up back where I left off. Um, My young son was a toddler at that time, and my older son had started school. And around that time is when I I really started to feel dissatisfied that I wasn't, even though I was helping to raise funds for these these students, I was not working with the students. I was not having a direct one-on-one impact. And my volunteer advocacy wasn't enough anymore, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I while I was going through um, my my cancer experience, one of the things that grounded me and brought me great joy and peace was knitting. And so as my husband and I are wont to do, sometimes we're just throw caution to the wind and, and do what comes up next. So I decided I'm I'm going to open a knitting store. I wanted something. Yeah. So I opened a yarn store in downtown Brunswick. Uh, I wanted something that connected me with people. I wanted something where I was with people, hopefully making life a little better or a little more colorful. And so I opened the Knitting Experience Cafe and that um, we had for for five years. And it was this amazing, amazing experience. And what it did was really kind of clarified to me what I wanted in life, which was was connection. It was this ability to help other people. And as this was happening, my youngest son was diagnosed with autism. That brought in, it threw me into a whole new world, you know, just like cancer threw me into the cancer world. All of a sudden I was in the world of developmental disabilities and autism and trying to learn as fast as I could. And in many ways, the strain and the um, intensity of it was so much more than cancer because this was my child and Mm -hmm. he didn't have a voice. And I knew I was his voice and I couldn't get this wrong. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I struggled with was 
just like with cancer, for the actual patient or the person with a disability, the path isn't laid out for you, even though so many people have gone through it before. You still, unfortunately, aren't given a guidebook, and you have to figure it out as you go. So at the same time that you're dealing with this diagnosis, you're trying to figure out, well, how do I get the services, and what are the right services, and what what is he entitled to? Um, because no one's going to tell you that. And in our town, the special education system was... There were a lot of obstacles, and so I threw myself into it. I, I read the the laws. I, I studied up on the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. I found other moms with children with autism, and we would meet in my shop before the shop would open. And one of the things we were all experiencing is that in our town that there was this huge roadblock to getting services. And, and, you know, once since I understand there are limited amount of funds, but according to the law, if, if a child has a disability, they are entitled to certain services. And in our town, you had to fight for it. You had to go and say, my child has X. I know that they're entitled to Y. How are you going to provide it? They didn't come to you and say, your child has X, they're entitled to Y, this is how we're going to provide it. So we formed an advocacy group. We brought a lot of other parents together who were also trying to find their way. And just like with, with the cancer experience, it really did tap into my my desire to see social justice actually played out and realized in the real world. And what would make me so mad when I would be in these meetings and sitting across from the superintendent who would act in a way that was meant to intimidate, was meant to really make me back down, is that I knew that there were so many parents out there who would back down or who wouldn't go to the meeting in the first place because they wouldn't know that they could. They wouldn't mm-hmm. know that they could demand that. They wouldn't know the rights of their child. And perhaps they didn't have either the education or the stubbornness <laughs> to to keep knocking on those doors. And, you know, I knew I could fight for my child. But what about the child sitting next to him who needed the same thing? So that's, that's why I got really involved in working for the rights of, of children in our area and working together with these other moms to, to advocate So I was running the shop. I was getting into the world of advocating for people with developmental disabilities. And then something with breast cancer kind of came back. And that is, we had such a wonderful community of knitters and they would come, we had knit at night and they would come and knit. And one of them made me a knitted prosthetic breast. And you know, I thought it was really funny. It was bright red. And so we all kind of joked about it. But then I actually, on a lark, I tried it and it was awesome. It felt so much better than the silicon ones that you get from medical supply. And the ones you get from medical supply are three or $400. And insurance companies will only pay for you to have one every two years. And so if it breaks down or gets a puncture, you are out of luck. So we formed a knitting group. We called them Knitted Knockers. And we, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't name them. One of one of our knitters named them. They were Knitted Knockers. And we put them up on the website. Our, our shop had a website. And just to give them away for free. So we made all shapes and sizes. And uh, a local news outlet picked up the story. And so they came and did um, a piece on it. And then that was picked up by CNN. And it kind of went across the globe. So we 
started to become really focused on getting breast prostheses to breast cancer patients across the world. So, you know, I was shipping them out to Israel, to the UK, to Spain, to all across the United States, and um, completely free of charge. So I also put my story up there to to talk a little bit more about my journey. And what I loved about this effort is, again, it it's, goes back to social justice. It's everyone should have access to these, these basic things that make you feel a little bit more like you, even though something awful might be happening. You know, I had a, a young woman, local young woman come to me. She had been duct taping her silicon prosthesis because it had sprung a leak and her insurance company wouldn't pay for a new one. And we fitted her with a knitted one that actually looked a lot better and was more comfortable for free. I had this guy, he must have been in his 50s or 60s, and he's you know, kind of a traditional Mainer, doesn't talk a lot. He had driven from hours away with his elderly mother. He didn't call ahead. I mean, we, we w- might not have been open. He brought his mom in the shop. She stood to the back. He came up and said he was here about the knitted breasts. And, you know, so I took him aside and asked him a little bit more, what's what's going on here? He explained about his mom who had had bilateral mastectomy, but also had a cardiac surgery. So she had a scar going down her chest. And because of that scar, the pain of having two silicone breast prostheses was too heavy. He wanted to get his mom knitted breast prostheses. So I immediately took her in back. We got her fitted and everything. And and she was beaming and he started crying and he insisted on paying for them, which we couldn't accept because these are all donated. And when they left, there was a $20 bill underneath the basket on the front and which we put into buying more yarn. But I would get emails from people, not just women, but husbands, fathers, sons asking for ways to help. So what we did is then we also put together how other groups across the world could could start their own group. And so now if you Google knitted knockers, I'm no longer involved. There are groups across the world who make these and ship them for free to women While I was doing this knitting shop, I spent a lot of time connecting one-on-one either with with other people who were going through having someone in their lives dealing with a disability and how do you navigate that? Or I was having these just amazing conversations with people who had been diagnosed with cancer and how they go forward with that. And after about five years of having the shop and these activities going on, Things got really difficult for my boys. My youngest son was really struggling at school. I had to close the shop a lot to respond to his needs and trying to make sure he was getting the services he needed. And my older son, you know, it's really hard to have a sibling with developmental disabilities. And when you don't, because you're you're often asked to be okay, even when you're not okay. And the pressure on the two of them was too much. And when you have your own business, it's 24-7. So... So we just made the decision. That was it. We, we closed the shop and I was like, okay, I'm, I am going to be mom. I'm going to do a hard reset for our family and focus on what they need. And so that's what I did. But as I did it, I, I really was looking at what had happened over the past few years. And what I loved most was being able to connect with other people who were struggling like I had struggled or was struggling, was struggling with issues that our family was dealing with. And so I decided to use that time to go back to school myself. 
So I enrolled in the University of New England for my master's of social work and basically to take what I had been doing informally and make, make it my next professional journey. And yes, with the intention that I would focus on, on cancer, on oncology, I realized very quickly that focusing on autism would be, I wouldn't be able to separate myself enough. It was, I was definitely too raw. We were still very much in the midst of it. My son's doing fantastic now and able to advocate for himself a great deal. But at that time, that wasn't the case. But with cancer, I had more distance and had done a lot more of really shifting from my own experience to helping advocate for others. So right out of school, I got a job with a hospice agency, which was so amazing and and profound. A lot of people say, you know, like, how, how could you ever do that work? That question always surprises me because it's it's such an honor to be able to be there at such a vulnerable time for families. So I did that for about a year and a half until a position opened up at the cancer center in Augusta, and I became one of the oncology social workers there. So presently, what I do is I work as a counselor, counseling patients and families or really anybody affected by cancer. I'm also the manager of our psychosocial oncology program. So I coordinate the larger team of support services, trying to eliminate barriers wherever we can. You know, for some people, those barriers are transportation. For others, they are understanding what's going on, having an opportunity to talk about their goals of care, of what's meaningful for them, what's meaningful for their family, what are the challenges that they are encountering, how in the world are they going to process all the information that's coming at them. And sometimes it's it's um, giving them a safe space to talk about all the questions that have come up after they've already met with the multiple doctors and figuring out what's right for them. You know, they're getting tons of information, but at the end of the day, the, the decision's going to be theirs and it, and it has to be right for them. And not necessarily what, you know, like with my own experience, not, it's not necessarily what the statistics say is, is what's right for you as an individual. It can inform it, but what's, what's truly a match for you. So that's the work that I'm lucky enough to do right now. So it was kind of a winding journey. Yeah. And um, you wrote to me earlier saying you know, the 20 something year old Chesley from college wouldn't have recognized you. But I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, there are so yeah. many elements of the advocacy work and the kind of finding social justice that makes you just so mad that you need to go <laughs> fix and, um, you know, help others. But but not in that kind of global sort of way, like person by person. Maybe that's the thing that's that's changed and evolved over over your lifetime that you can really do great important work one one by one i'm overwhelmed by this story and adversity brings out the best and worst in people and it certainly seems to have brought out the best in you and really helping others thank you so much for doing it and thanks for sharing that story with us well thank you thank you for asking me to to talk about it maybe you're right that the younger me would have recognized some of it. I don't know that she she knew about social work if she had. It definitely is the perfect fit for me. The whole focus of the, the profession is about social justice and advocacy for the vulnerable and doing it at the counseling level to be able to help people one-on-one is 
absolutely the perfect fit for me. Yeah. Well, and it, and it shows. So thanks so much, Chesley. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Chesley Flotten, the former owner of the Knitting Experience Cafe and a licensed clinical social worker specializing in oncology social work and focusing on addressing the psychosocial needs of individuals and families coping with the impact of illness and disability. She's currently the manager of psychosocial oncology services at the Harold Alphon Center for Cancer Care in Augusta, Maine. Hers is just one of the amazing stories from our classmates on following the roads that appear before you, like it or not, and finding your footing nevertheless. Find more of these stories on Roads Taken wherever you access your podcasts. Please take a minute to subscribe and leave a comment, particularly on the major platforms, so that other people can learn from the wisdom my guests share with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on Roads Taken.